0: Welcome to The Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan.
1: Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other.
0: We're The Reframers. It really doesn't do anything. People think that that makes a difference, but it actually doesn't make any kind of difference. You need like a car loan payment or... a a mortgage you know something that shows that you continuously will pay but you
2: can't get a mortgage without a credit score that is it is good enough for them to low you and loan you anything (laughs) it is a vicious terrible cycle (laughs) yeah yeah It's
1: it's your ability to like spend more money than you have and then pay it back in a timely manner which is kind of weird
0: it doesn't make any sense and it actually penalizes people who never have debt
1: well i mean this is this is the alexander Hamilton. It's this philosophy as a nation, right? Like we need to expand our debt because if we show we can pay it back, people will view us as more credible. So we'll be able to get loans. We'll be able to be a big boy in foreign affairs. And Is
2: that what that means?
1: Yeah, that's that's Hamilton's whole deal where he like founded a central bank. He took on all the state's debts as a federal government. And that's what Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton are fighting about. Was yeah, but Jefferson I, didn't, was like, I
2: never understood Hamilton's point.
1: The point is, like, if we become a, a reliable borrower of, of foreign money, right, to pay off debt, and we can pay that back, we become more legitimate in the eyes of, at that point, like, the elites, you know, UK, why would, France. Why would,
2: how would they know that we're a reliable borrower? Like, how would he know? Like, oh, we have well, enough money to even make
1: that call. I mean, it's a bet. Like You're betting on the fact that you can pay it back. So that was what was so essential for his plan of like, okay, we need to unite the nation into like one country rather than 13 colonies. And then we need to be able to assume all the debts and then start paying them back. It's just like a bank makes the calculus of like, okay, you're 16. I'm not going to lend you $20,000, you know, line of credit. I'm going to give you like, $4,000 $4,000 line of credit because you haven't proven yourself to be reliable. So it like eventually worked its way up, which is now why we have billions or trillions of dollars in debt, because so far, the rest of the world sees the United States as being a reliable borrower. But our debt just passed $30 trillion, which is more than our entire GDP. Uh, so that's something we should be aware of.
0: Also with Hamilton, going back to the founding fathers, it made sense to him to consolidate debt because some states had debt from the Revolutionary War and some didn't. And it didn't really make sense for different states to have different levels of debt because they fought the revolution together. And it was different areas, particularly in the in the North, that got hit harder by different aspects of the Revolutionary War. And so the Southern states, a lot of them didn't have debt. And then the Southern states also had Slavery, and so they had free labor in a way that the north didn't, and consolidating debt was also a way of unifying the nation so that it was under the federal government instead of the various states.
1: It's a symbolic gesture as much as a practical financial one,
2: yeah, who would somebody have gotten money from to fight the revolutionary war? who are you in debt France? to
1: France and Spain primarily oh. yeah,
0: because they Be- were not they were against for the British, you know, all of the alliances together. They they wanted us to win because they wanted Britain to lose.
1: Because back in there, back in Europe, by destabilizing Britain and and losing all the tax revenue and the resources and all that that the American colonies gave them, it knocks Great Britain down a peg, which very much benefits France and Spain. So it it was a geopolitical move for France and Spain to do that. But we we as the United States at that point then still owed them money back for guns and supplies and all that kind of stuff.
2: Are there some countries that are just like flush with cash? China, I'm guessing. I don't
1: know. I don't know, know if I,
2: China's
0: flush with cash.
2: Because I, I feel like every, I always hear that we owe China so much money that we're in so much debt to them. So does that yeah. mean they have a lot of money?
1: Not necessarily. I, I mean, because so. I think every country is... Lending and borrowing to other countries because, think for example, like on an individual scale with like a bank, your money, you know, going back to It's a Wonderful Life, like your money isn't in the bank, the bank has loaned your money out to somebody else. So it's kind of this like big whirlpool of people lending each other money. The problem and the vulnerability we have is if suddenly, just like in It's a Wonderful Life, if China decides we want you to pay all that money back, we can't do it, like we literally don't have enough money in circulation or, the, or that we make it one year to be able to pay that back. And there's, and that's not the only thing that we owe money on. Like I, if I had to guess Switzerland would be maybe one of the only countries that's like pretty close to neutral, like Switzerland and like the Cayman islands, just because they're always yeah, brought up if as I like had tax to guess. havens. <laughs> that's
0: yeah. I would, I would have guessed Switzerland too.
2: Let's put, put a pin in this for later because I have, <laughs> I'm so fascinated. I think I need yes. to go to bank, bank school.
0: Let's learn everything about the world economy. It's not, it's a very complicated field, I would say.
1: Yeah. You know, I found out you can download Wikipedia and it's only like 32 gigabytes. So all we have to do is each (laughs) download Wikipedia and then divide it up. We each get 10 gigabytes of data to memorize and then we'll become experts in everything. Ooh. It's an easy plan, right? We should have that done by next next recording.
2: As long as we get to choose what data we have to learn. <laughs> okay. Sacks <laughs> all for it. I'm I want ready. all the Economics. like. I want all the weird like unexplained murders and and weird. I don't know, like that weird hotel in L.A. that people always die at, and. I don't know. That's that would be I get so stuck down that rabbit
0: hole. Uh yeah, I would say that's primarily what I use Wikipedia for. And then also like movie plot summaries is also oh, yeah. I use Wikipedia for.
1: <laughs> that's what I used it for last time was the greatest showman. We watched The Greatest Showman, and I was like, So what what's up with this Barnum guy? And so oh I my read god, he was
0: actually like a really bad dude. <laughs> yeah. It we was a great movie, that. but I
1: was like, he was worried. Prob- they probably glossed over a lot of really ethical and moral um <laughs> shortcomings shall we say
2: i'd say yeah
0: yeah
2: oh my god i always donate to a competing when it's like we're humbly asking you for like one dollar i'm like i have a hundred percent or like you've earned my one dollar or my five dollars or whatever every year i'm like i get so stuck down these holes take my money
1: uh, i'm you? still undecided have,
2: I'm are you guys guilty
0: never Seriously, done that both of
2: you? <laughs> Not one time. No, nope. <laughs> I feel like such a good person. <laughs> <laughs> I never get to be better than you guys. This is the best day of my life. I'm going to log off.
1: Congratulations, you win.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh,
1: All right. Well, I'm sure we in that 30, I'm sure <laughs> that in that 32 gigabytes of data, somewhere is a page on our president Joe Biden. 46.
2: All right.
0: Sixth President of the United States. And the so, topic of our meeting today.
1: Yeah, we're going to break down and discuss the highs and lows and in-betweens of Joe Biden's first year in office.
2: As president.
1: I think he spent like 87 years or something in the Senate, so this is his first year <laughs> as president, but
0: he is he is 79, so that fact does not check out.
1: Yeah, it's sarcasm, <laughs> but yes. All right. No,
0: but yes, he was in the Senate for decades.
1: I think it's like 30, like 39 or something years, like legitimately, I think that might be the number. It's like 39 or 45 years.
0: Like I wonder older, what the record is. And we all are. Yes. He has been in the Senate longer than we have been alive.
1: Yes, that is a fact. Where do we want to start?
2: I just want to start by saying that it is January 2022. So we are talking about Joe Biden's first year in office from 2021 on, just in case he gets reelected.
1: Yes, and and the inauguration happens January twenty first. So we're we're recording this like a year and a week, maybe two weeks after the one year anniversary. So yeah, let's let's break it down. How do, how do we think he did overall? Maybe we start out with like a rating, like a letter rating, and then get into why.
0: Letter rating, okay.
1: Or on a one to ten, I don't know.
0: I'm trying to think of where I put it on <laughs> one to ten. I, and and also later, okay, so I think I'd, it'd be like, for me, a five on a one to 10 rating, and like a C on a academic scale, because it's okay. passing, I would okay. say, it's passing.
1: All right. That's interesting. I was, um, I know you've, you've expressed on the show before that Biden was definitely like, not your choice. And you begrudgingly have had to kind of accept him. But I was, I was expecting more than a five and a C. Maybe not much, but a little more.
0: For yeah. reference, if I was going to compare that to like Obama, say, I would put Obama at like a B plus and an eight. And I would okay. put Trump at like a negative one and <laughs> an F. So that's, <laughs> that's like where I'm at. <laughs> okay. I think that that actually helps give some context of like where my rating lands.
1: Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. I think... For me, I would probably say I was gonna give like a like a four, like a three or a four um, on the numeric scale, and then I don't know, kind of like a D plus C minus range on the academic scale. Cassie, how about you? Do you have a a rating?
2: Oh, I you know I like data, I like facts and figures. I'm interested to kind of make my decision as we talk through. Biden's promises and what he's been able to deliver on. Um I would my initial reaction would be somewhere between a C and a B because my bar is so low post Trump and my bar is low leading during a pandemic. He wasn't my top choice, but he was closer to being my choice than Donald Trump. I like people who follow through and I think we all appreciate that, so I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm.
0: And just for the record, I voted for Biden,
2: and I think Cassie did too. What is going to be our criteria today about how we determine, for me, I was just thinking it's going to be delivering on promises. What are the promises? But are we going to be looking at previous president's approval ratings? Are we going to look at any other data or information just so I can prepare myself?
1: I don't have like a lot of comparative data. I have a little bit from like Biden to Trump. Um, but I'm mostly just taking like the year in terms of like what the numbers were for the economy, the growth, the unemployment, uh, foreign policy, that kind of stuff, um, prominent legislation. Like, so I'm not really doing a comparison against others, more just taking it like on his merits.
0: Yeah, i say that too. I didn't actually look at Biden's campaign promises for the most part. I think it's really hard, especially in the first year to deliver on all the campaign promises so maybe i should be expecting more but that wasn't a thing that i personally cared about quite as much i will say that i actually tried really hard to focus on just biden and biden's year and not make it a trump biden thing i don't like whataboutism i don't want it to be well biden did this but it's still better than trump because what about trump what about this bad thing that trump did i think that's a dishonest and lazy way to argue. And so I'm tr- I have been trying to take Biden on Biden and not just on not being Trump. Yeah. That said, I think that Biden was elected for not being Trump and not necessarily because he- it's Biden. Um. So I will take that into this consideration. I mean, that's one of the reasons I voted for him. But I'm not I'm going to try not to sit here and be Well, Trump, 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 because I actually think that that's not helpful when we're trying to look at what Biden has done.
1: Yeah, super well said, Aaron. I totally agree. I um, think that that is appropriate. I think the whataboutism is not only. I think it allows people to excuse away poor performance by saying, "Well, at least it's better than my, you know, than your guy," or at least I he didn't do as bad as your guy did. Maybe let's start with the with the. With his approval rating at the at the one year mark, just to kind of set the stage of where he ended, and then we can get into why.
0: Hit
2: us up, Cass. What? Sorry. What what My give second? us the approval ratings?
1: You yeah, you said you had <laughs> so the chart. I
2: thought it was coming. I thought my segment was on later. I'm still back Where are the my receipts on? I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I literally feel like I'm getting dragged on stage. All right, I'm here. That's guests. a game face. I'm focused. <laughs> the sub is coming off of the bench. Here we go. Biden approval. I'm getting average of 48.9 job approval for the first year. This one that came out today, February 3rd, is saying new low of 41%. Um, so less than half approve of the president currently. I look at this. Chart from brookings.edu that's talking about the presidential job approval rating in the first year, Donald Trump at 35% is our lowest, then Obama at 51, W. Bush at 87% in his first year, Clinton, 54%, H.W. Bush, 71%, Reagan, 49%, Carter, 57%, and then Ford at 42%, Nixon at 59 Kennedy at 78 he's our highest next to W Bush who was 87
0: and Bush would have been so high after the first year because I think because 9-11 happened in September right before you know the the rating would have come out for his first year and there was a lot of great patriotism in the country right at that moment um so his approval rating shot way up after 9-11
2: Yes, he was inaugurated on January 20th, 2001. Mm-hmm.
1: I know I've seen some polls Quinnipiac has Biden like as low as in the 30s. Um, that was like at the end of the year last year. Um, among registered voters, 35% said they approved. So it it could have come up by then. You could always cite different figures. That's the lowest I've seen for him, not necessarily for president, because I know that probably like you said, Trump was in the 30s. I think he was like 35, 37.
0: Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen that. I haven't seen one that low. The, of the like four ones I looked at, they were all in those low 40s, mm-hmm. around like 40 to 43%.
1: If if people want to follow up on me to make sure that I'm not just pulling stuff out of my behind, it's from the Hill Quinnipiac poll shows Biden with 33% approval. That's dated 12 22 So I think the average is, you know, real real clear politics has the average around that 40s, that low 40s. So um, we can go ahead and say, you know, roughly 60% of the country disagrees or disapproves of Biden's first year.
2: This is, yeah, this is from Gallup, Uh, Trump at 38.4, Biden at 48.9, Clinton at 49.3. I think the point is Trump is lowest, but Biden is coming in second lowest. Regardless, which is super yeah. interesting, we're now living in a time where the two most recent presidents are the two lowest approval rate. Have the two lowest approval ratings,
1: yeah, and this is something that I had to learn about polling is that the big factor is the independence, right? Like you're typically going to have somewhere ninety plus percent of support if it's your guy, you know your party's guy, ninety percent of your party's going to support it, and almost you know none support from the other team, right? Um so the main difference maker in this is really the independence. And so um typically I I think in modern electoral politics, it's really common to see approval ratings hovering around the 50 or or mid-40s.
0: I also wonder specifically with Biden, if some of it has to do with people who identify more liberal or more as Democrats who are just not super happy with Biden like me. And I think many other people who, you know, voted for Biden because they felt like they wanted or not even felt they wanted to get away from Trump. So, you know, he was never necessarily the person that a lot of people were super excited about. And so when your bar is already low, and then it just kind of continues. And I I would say like, I don't think it necessarily went down for me. My expectations Mm -hmm. were low they didn't exceed they didn't plummet <laughs> i was just like yeah kind of across the board um and so like if i was answering this poll which i was not called for this poll um but if i was answering it i would say like no i i probably don't approve his approval ratings but would i vote for him again over uh, you know many other people yes probably right. so it kind of
1: depends on who gets who right. he's up against
0: yeah it does it yeah. definitely does so
1: all right. Well, uh, thanks for the the rundown, cast on approval ratings uh, for recent presidents, and including Biden. So let's get into some of the economic data to start uh, of maybe why his rating is what it is. Some of the economic summaries for Biden's first year um, are compared to a year ago. That's typically how economic data works. It's compared to the same month one year prior. Wages are up four point seven percent. Unemployment is at 3.9%. The White House claims they created 6 million jobs in the last year. And the other significant one I found was that because of, I think, the, the COVID relief package, uh, child poverty has dropped 40%. So those are some of the major economic, um, I would say, statistics for the, from the administration. Curious to see what you guys think or have anything else to add.
0: The only thing I would add to that is that unemployment dropped from 6.2%-ish to 3.9%. So it's not just yeah. that it's 3.9, it actually went down over the last year. Pretty That was a pretty significant drop, like one of the bigger drops in unemployment mm-hmm. um, in recent years.
2: Cool. I have up a running list of Joe Biden's campaign promises and how he's done so far on them. So in the economy category, we had roll back. President Donald Trump's 2017 cuts to corporate tax rates. This promise is lists as broken. Biden's social and environmental spending package included tax hikes on corporations and the wealthy, but the bill is currently stalled in the Senate. Next, pause federal student debt payments. That's been done. And last, order a review of U.S. supply chains. The list says done. I think it's interesting talking
0: about the economy. I was listening to uh, the Daily the other day, and it was talking—the story I was listening to was talking about Americans' views of the economy versus how the economy is actually doing. And the economy is actually doing pretty well, uh, aside from inflation, which is an issue right now. But inflation is not impacting us as much as we think it is. At least this is what the article claimed that. You know, unemployment is going down. We have jobs. We have, uh, in fact, employees have job ability to move around in a way that we haven't had recently. Um, Wages are not stagnant either. Wages are going up. So there's actually a lot of things about the economy that are positive. But we have a very negative outlook on the economy. And I, I found that really interesting. And I think a lot of it does have to do with this inflation conversation. Inflation is absolutely going up.
1: Like Aaron mentioned, wages are up 4.7%. This is, I think, the most recent data from December. So, But inflation rose to to 7%. So if you were making $100, you are now making $104.70. However, prices of things rose 7%. So in terms of your real buying power, you lost somewhere around 2.5% purchasing power. So that's kind of the the concern and it helps that wages are up, right? Because it, it does mean that the pain of that inflation is offset by the the wage gain. However, the 7% metric for inflation is at a 40 year high. Uh, it's the largest 12 month increase since the period ending June 1982 from the US Department of Labor. So the inflation point is significant because it is this, the biggest inflationary period that we've seen in 40 years.
2: I have a question, how much is inflation and the rise or fall of wages really in the president's control or really a reflection of how they're doing in their office?
1: It is I would say mixed. When I was a kid I thought it's 100%. Like you hear the you know Biden created 6 million jobs this year. Biden didn't go and hire 6 million people. So that was my naive take as a child and then when I got older and I thought I was an intellectual and very smart, I said, "No, the president has no impact on the economy." I think that's also wrong. What I think is more true is that, based off of a certain amount of levers that a president can pull regarding, you know, federal policies. In this case, in Biden's case, I think that, you know, the COVID thing weighed inordinately. You know, obviously, it's, he's only the second president that's had to deal with COVID, um, so that was a factor. But I think that, in in certain degrees, some of the COVID restrictions. Have maybe slowed the the job gain and contributed along with the COVID relief package and uh, other spending measures have contributed to inflation.
0: The other thing I want to mention about this is that we live in a global economy. It's not just the United States economy, and so inflation is on the rise in the entire world. So it can't just be our stimulus packages that are increasing inflation across the board. This is a, Affecting. I mean, other countries are also dealing with inflation. And I think, Zach, you're right to note that COVID is a big part of this. I mean, one of the reasons there's inflation is that supply chains are breaking down. And so there's more demand than there is supply because we can't get stuff to us. And then with people out on COVID, which was a really big problem, especially in the last two months, So we have these demands for goods, and we're not getting them. And we actually have had higher demands for goods than we have in previous years. There's sort of a sway of how many services you're demanding versus how many goods you're demanding as like a populace. And we're demanding a lot of goods right now. And there aren't the supply chains to back it up. And that's not just a problem in the US. That's a problem everywhere. And so I do think the inflation is worse in the US right now than it is in other countries. And I think that the COVID spending definitely has something to do with that. But I don't think that that's the only reason why there's inflation. And I think people have been conflating that a little bit. Like, oh, there's tons of inflation. It's definitely just because of this spending bill. And I think that's just too simplistic. Um, Economies are a little more complicated than that.
1: I think it's definitely a contributing factor because just... You have more dollars chasing the same amount of product. And so that is going to create an inflationary scenario. But I agree, it's not the sole contributing factor. Pandora's box has been opened. There's nothing one thing that's going to say, you can definitely link 7% inflation to this one thing. It, it can't be done, but I do think it contributed.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. they do expect, I was looking at some research on this, for economists expect inflation to decline in the next few months. And I mean, Democrats are hopeful that it declines a lot in the next few yeah. months so that it's declined before the midterms in the fall. And part of the reason that it's probably going to decline is that a lot of the pandemic stimulus is expiring in the next couple of months. And so there's not going to be as much of that, oh, getting, I don't know, just the money being pumped into the economy. And then the Federal yeah. Reserve has also talked about raising interest rates, which could also help with inflation.
1: Those two measures will help restrict the money flow, which will help mean that you have less dollars now chasing after the same amount of goods, which means you kind of cool some of that rapid inflation off.
0: And those are two things that are politically controlled, right, in the United States. So to yes. your initial question, Cassie, of how much control does Biden or the administration actually have over these things? Those are two things that are within their power. And the stimulus, thats that was just part of the bill, of the mm-hmm. spending bill. So it's not like it's in Biden's power right now, but it was part of the bill, you know, that passed, that's now expiring.
1: That's a great point, Aaron. Yeah. Because the Federal Reserve is part of the federal government uh, in a kind of weird relationship way, but it is part of the government. And so um, the Fed does set the interest rate for the country and then, you know, your local banks and whatnot follow suit. So let's move on. Next one, unemployment. I think this one could probably be pretty quick down from six something to 3.9. That's a good thing. Obviously, you would have to be insane to argue that a lowered unemployment rate is bad. (laughs) Um, And that's probably because the economy is opening up and people are being able to go back to work.
0: And I think that vaccination had a lot to do with that as well, because if we we forget about it now, because we're at, you know, a whole year of having vaccines, but the vaccine rollout happened at the very beginning of last year, right? Like it started in December, but the real push was in like January, February, March, getting lots of people vaccinated, that's, that's helped businesses stay open because people get less sick and they don't get sick for as long with the vaccines. And so I do think that that's helped the unemployment as well.
1: The report is that, that in the last year, since Biden took office, created 6 million jobs. Now, it's interesting, and this is why I went down this little rabbit holes, because the Congressional Budget Office um, estimated somewhere around 6.1 Million jobs, so a hundred thousand or so more jobs were would have been created if Biden did nothing. So it was based off of the Trump economy as Trump was leaving office, and they note that there's a problem when the government efforts to create jobs because every dollar that the government spends, it must first extract from the economy through taxation, thus depleting the amount of capital the private sector could allocate for job creation. Um, and so I think that that's really really interesting, but by the federal government trying to stimulate job creation, they may have in fact inhibited what could have been more job growth.
0: I think it's interesting, but I don't know enough about it. And I also know that economic trends are more long-term than we give them credit for just in general. So there were kind of similar, because I feel like the basic uh, argument, if you like strip away all the economic stuff is, well, the job creation is really Trump's fault, like, doing, and Biden maybe made there be less job creation. Like, at the end of the day, that's kind of what that says, right?
1: It's, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's something like that, where- Like, that's
0: the bottom line of of what that's getting at.
1: Because it's the it's the Congressional Budget Office, so it's not like it's uh, like a right-wing think tank. It's saying this is, like, based off of, right. of the economy at the time. I, I won't say necessarily- Trump created the jobs. It's more of like with the economy in the state that it Mm -hmm. was in December, if, if it continues along these lines, and of course it's estimates, it's, it's, we can't go back and, you know, test it. It's just, it's an estimate, but I thought that was interesting.
0: And the estimate is really, really close. Like, I don't know if the point one is within a margin of error. I could, because that's the only thing I'm thinking is like, was it actually like the policies made less or is there just a margin of error in the point one? between 6 million and 6.1 million. And I don't know. I do think that like economic trends are hard to understand. And a lot of economic policy affects years down the road. And so like there was economic policy from Obama that people thought helped the economy when Trump was president. And there might be economic policy from Trump that helps the economy when Biden's president. Like it runs in these longer term cycles and it's very easy to judge whoever is president, like at the time of if the economy is good, if it's bad, you know, a a president could have tanked the economy and it doesn't like the worst part could be during the first term of another president. So yeah, it just the Mm -hmm. economic cycles, I think it's, it's tough to, to line them up by year.
1: Yeah. The part that, that captivated me was that, the bit that I read about the problem is that the government first has to take that money out of the economy, in order to spend it. You know, as a small government kind of guy, that that part was interesting to me because I hadn't really considered that element before. Would that money have been better spent if it had just remained in the economy the whole time? So I I totally agree with what you're saying. It's impossible to to truly tell, but that was an interesting kind of like principle of government kind of note to me. Do you want to move on to COVID then? COVID yeah, let's response. do COVID. Okay, let's do COVID.
0: So I think the biggest thing, there's a couple big things with COVID. It obviously like dominated Biden's presidency in the first year because because it did. <laughs> we're still like in year one of or year two of COVID, I guess, last year. So some of the big things at the beginning were
2: the... It actually is, you know, all of 2020, all of 2021. So we're really in our third year of COVID, if you can believe it. Yeah, Yeah, we
0: are in the third year of COVID. So the big first thing that I remember was the American Rescue Plan Act, which is the COVID stimulus. Those are the same thing. So if you see two different titles, that's the same bill. And that was the $1.9 trillion of COVID relief spending. And then the vaccine rollout, which I mentioned before. But that all happened right at the beginning of Biden's presidency. And for me, those two things, I was... Great with both of those, particularly the vaccine rollout. I think that that happened very smooth and we got vaccines to lots of states right away. There wasn't these long, long wait times for people to get vaccinated. I mean, there's been the push for, you know, to convince people to get vaccinated, but I actually thought that the rollout of that was really good. And for me, it was nice because we had had years of just kind of inconsistency on some of the the COVID stuff. And it was nice to have something. Go right, And I thought that the vaccine rollout went pretty right. The goal that Biden set at the beginning of the year was a 100 million vaccines given to people by in like the first hundred days, I think. And they blew past that. So like it, it almost became like, well, why did you set such a low goal? you know, mm-hmm. because so many
2: people got vaccinated so fast. So for me, I thought that was great. It ended up being about 200 million. Which is super exciting. And our country has 335 million. So as of right now, February 2022. Wow, (laughs) almost Mm -hmm. said 2020. It looks like 76% of Americans have at least one dose. So that's 250 million people. Fully vaccinated is 64.1%. And then Booster given twenty six point eight percent.
1: So this is probably where I think the Biden administration maybe did the worst. I, I agree that the the vaccine rollout was was great. I have no problems with the vaccine rollout. I, as Liz stated in the COVID episodes that we did for season one, I support the vaccines. I think that uh, germ theory has been proven for many centuries. So um, I I'm totally in agreement there. But I think the rest of Biden's handling of COVID was in the administration i should say was not good i think his messaging was inconsistent there's video of of him when he was campaigning to be president where people asked him you know would you institute uh, vaccine mandates and he said no i would not do that Uh, in which case he promptly did several vaccine mandates um, in the coming year the messaging regarding masks has been inconsistent and the administration has not really shown a good willingness to change their opinion uh, as the data becomes more and more clear regarding infection rates, deaths, um, hospitalizations, et cetera. And I think that Biden's stated, you know, goal when he became, you know, elected president was he was going to be, you know, a unifier. And I think that he has used COVID as a wedge and the club to beat people who don't want to get vaccinated. And so that's where I think Biden has probably done the worst.
0: That's interesting. That's not what I would put as the worst of this past year for Biden, but I don't disagree on where we're at with vaccines right now. And I think that in terms of trying to convince people to get them, I guess just like continuing to, I don't, for lack of a better word, like yell at people to get vaccinated, like that's not going to work. And I, it seems like that's what is still the main. Strategy coming out of the White House and the CDC, I feel like we need to move on from that. So I don't disagree that like I, I am really glad that the vaccine push was so strong in the beginning. I'm glad that we have a mandate for healthcare workers to get vaccinated with COVID. I think that that makes sense. And just so everyone knows, the um, Biden did the. It was a mandate for large businesses and healthcare workers to be vaccinated, or submit to COVID testing. That's a part people really forget. It's vaccinated or submitting to COVID testing.
1: At their own expense, on their own time, once a week.
0: Okay. And the Supreme Court just recently struck down the large businesses mandate. So it left the healthcare workers, but it struck down it for large businesses. And that was a huge blow to Biden and to his COVID policy. So, you know, I, I understand that. And I think at this point, and but this is almost more into like January. So this is kind of part of the first year and kind of even not, I think, um, of, of the part that I guess I, I at least am not stoked about is that I think we need to actually be focusing more on doing things that are going to systematically help us live with COVID. And those things would be, you know, widespread testing and um, appropriate masking places where we require masks should require like KN95s or N95s and not do the cloth mask because we know that the cloth masks don't work um, in the way that these other masks do. And and so I think that there's other ways to be moving forward um, in the COVID area. And a lot of COVID stuff has been reactionary. And that's true, not just of Biden, but of other countries, of Trump. You know, it's it's tough to plan for what Covid's going to do. But there are things that we should have known, like a big winter surge. You know, it's great that the government is sending us tests now. But when would that have really been helpful? A month ago, when we had really high rates of COVID Before during Christmas. Omicron. Exactly, like during Christmas and in, in, in January. And yes, Omicron came in December and I get that, but it, to me, it makes sense. Like let's produce tests because we know we had this huge wave last year and it's reasonable to think that we would have another big wave. I mean, I'm expecting maybe we'll have another summer wave because it's exactly what happened last year. So it's fair to kind of be trying to think ahead on these things. And, you know, July 4th last year was kind of the, we're going to have July 4th barbecues and it's sort of the end of COVID. And then like two weeks later we had the Delta wave and the Delta was just truly devastating because it was also still very serious. And um, a lot of people died during the Delta wave. And so it's, it, it's, some of that. I think that I don't like fully blame Biden for because it's COVID and it's just, I, I think it's difficult to do any of these predictions But at the same time, I also agree that there are some things that we knew. And I think that the administration in general could have been less reactionary. And I have also been frustrated, particularly with the CDC's inconsistent messaging on, you know, mass testing, what can be open, what shouldn't be open, what's an appropriate risk, what's not. That does feel Mm -hmm. like it changes a lot.
1: One of the things that we're seeing now that we do have so much data is that if you're vaccinated you know the hospitalization and the death rate is so low Um, for example if you see uh the charts and overlapping charts of infections where you see a huge infection spike in let's say january because of people being together in the holidays it's colder people are indoors more it gives more chance for the virus to spread you don't see a corresponding spike in deaths because so much of the country is vaccinated and then in addition so much of the country has natural immunity as well that's the part i think that people don't talk about and is not included in government policy i mean biden said when he took office he was going to shut down the virus he's clearly not done that um you know there's there's been he's had more infections than than the predecessor he's had more deaths than the predecessor so i don't see the response from the government as being effective at this point i think it doesn't make sense to keep having such severe lockdown measures and closures when the deaths aren't there. I mean, at this like we don't lock down states because people get the cold, you know, or the flu. And at this point, if you're vaccinated or have natural immunity, your uh, severity of, of if you get COVID is not going to be severe. If you have multiple risk factors or are older, that's a different story. But for the general populace, it's not as risky as it was when we didn't know any of this.
0: Yeah, I think, man, COVID is just this thing we could talk about like forever and ever and ever. It doesn't, it never gets old actually because it's always changing. But one thing to follow up on, are there actually lockdowns happening? Because even when Omicron was really high, we didn't lock anything down. So I'm not really sure what you're talking about with that.
1: I mean, lockdowns being like mask mandates, um, the social distance policies still in, in source. I mean, California has it for sure.
0: Um okay they, you so know, I, re- I am thinking requiring that vaccines
1: you're, you know I'm thinking uh, that
0: you're talking about sorry to interrupt you uh, i oh, was okay. confused cuz i thought that you were talking about shutting down businesses and shutting down schools and doing those kinds cuz that lockdown that's what that says to me so you're basically talking about like any covid measures at all
1: Yeah because i mean i yes uh, essentially So that i
0: definitely disagree with you on
1: Okay because yeah, it's not like we're locked down like we were in March of 2020. However, all the restrictions are still in place as if as if COVID was as bad as it was in uh, before we had the vaccines. It's just not anymore. It's not as bad as it was. And so we know that the cloth masks aren't doing anything. Why do we still have a mask mandate? You know, so many schools are still closed. I think total data has like 20 deaths that are kids have died because of COVID, not died with COVID, but died because of COVID, that's so low to keep schools closed still. Like that, that doesn't make sense.
0: So I don't know that schools are still closed. I'm just going to put that out there. And that is something that the Biden administration has been consistently saying that it is a top priority to keep schools open. So I will say that that has been consistent.
1: Okay. I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, that's great if that's true. But I know, you know, we talked to somebody, just a few days ago that said yeah like they're still sending us you know we'll be back for a week and then a few cases will break out and then they send us back to remote learning. So I think I think it's not consistent. I think people are still very much afraid and they don't realize how low of a threat like your your chances of death from covid really are. And so if you get a one or two breakout cases, people freak out and then you know that class or that grade level is is closed down.
0: Yeah, I think you're underestimating how serious it's been in the last like month though, because there's still been like hundreds of deaths a day and the outbreaks have not been like one or two people. It's been like thousands of people having outbreaks. And so, I mean, I think that schools should still be open. Like that's actually the thing I I think the most about COVID is that schools really need to be open. The risks are just too high for kids when we isolate them and have them at home. But I, I think it's overstating it at this point to say that we just have no COVID risk at all and that we shouldn't have any restrictions for anything. And we're saying this also in like a super highly vaccinated state.
1: Sure. I mean, yeah, that's true. And I'm not saying that there's no risk from COVID, but I'm saying at this point, as kind of I said, when we did our COVID episodes, you, you've had the chance to get the vaccine you have had the chance to actually contract COVID, that at this point I think it's an individual decision. If if you want to proceed and, and do a risk assessment of I don't want to get vaccinated and I have other risk factors, I don't think the rest of society should pay that price. But but maybe we're getting too focused on COVID and not enough on on Biden. But we can we can disagree on that. I think it's still move on.
0: Yeah, that that works for me.
1: Cool. All right. Okay, anything else economic-related?
0: No, or we're COVID, not on or, the economy.
1: Or COVID-related, I guess, <laughs> I think yeah. we're
0: on. I think we're on uh, legislation because we're okay. kind of, I mean, it's COVID, but we're kind of talking about, like, yeah. that's the big legislation, basically, of Biden's first year is the American Rescue Plan and then also the infrastructure, infrastructure bill. 1.2, infrastructure, $1.2 trillion
1: dollar package. Yeah. Yes,
0: Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And this is the first half of a bill that is supposed to be even bigger. And the second half of the bill, which is this is part of a package called Build Back Better, has yet to pass in the Senate.
1: And I think is, for all intents and purposes, kind of dead. Uh, I think
0: it is because yeah. Mansion has released a statement saying, yeah, I'm not going to vote for this. And it seems like there's not any kind of middle ground that the Democrats, not even Democrats or Republicans even the Democrats can yeah. come to on the second half of this bill.
1: Yeah. So that was, that's right. Uh, Manchin had said back in July, I think when, when Build Back Better was first kind of announced, um, he said, listen, it, it was something like $4.5 trillion in spending. Um, you know, it was, it was a, a huge price tag for this, for this bill. Um, and and just so people know that's allocated out over a 10 year period. So it's not like you're spending $4.5 trillion, you know, all at once. Um, but it's a piece of legislation that's valued to cost at 4.5 trillion, some some ballpark of that over the next 10 years. Manchin had said, I'm not going to go with anything that's, I think, above like 1.5. And it's not just Manchin, but it's Manchin and Kristen Sinema with the Republicans, because the House or the Senate is split 50-50. So a lot of times you'll hear, well, is it really Democratic that you have two senators that are holding up the passage of this bill? And it's not two. it's it's the Republican caucus plus mansion and cinema. Um, but yeah, so the the package that did pass is one point two trillion, um, which increases investment in bridges, roads, airports, public transit, national broadband internet, as well as waterways and energy systems. And that was like I think got a decent amount of bipartisan support and is I approve of. I think that's a good a good thing to pass. So I I support
0: that package. Yeah that even that kind of surprises me actually <laughs> i can never tell like honestly i can't tell when you think government spending is valuable and when you don't and so i always just kind of assume that you never want any government spending
1: i think i think um i mean for as much as i possibly can which uh, i think everybody could do more but there's just frankly not enough time you know to me this seemed like a fairly targeted piece of legislation it had a clearly defined purpose it's going to national infrastructure Um, you know, I think some of that should be on a state level. I don't know why me as a Californian am necessarily paying for the roads being built in Kentucky. Um, So I I have a little bit of a quabble there, but I also realize I live in 2022 and we're a super big country and I am not going to get a small limited government like I want. And if, if it were up to me, California would pay for everything within California, you know, except maybe some interstate things or, you know, whatever. But Given that this was a fairly narrow scope of a bill, um, and it did have bipartisan support, uh, and it is going to something that I think is important for us to maintain. I mean, I think there's a big threat that our nation has regarding our energy systems, uh, electrical energy. So I think finding ways for us to fortify and reinforce that, so we're less vulnerable to, um, you know, internal risks, you know, natural disasters, or external risks, you know, an attack from, you know, EMP or whatever nuclear detonation like it sounds crazy but it is something that our national security hinges on if a, a, a energy system goes down like we are in trouble so i think that that's why i don't mind this um, for those reasons
0: yeah that's great and i totally agree actually i think that infrastructure is something that's really worth spending on and it's also something that needs to happen i mean it was very ironic Biden was going, what state was it in? New Jersey or something. And he was giving a speech about needing infrastructure and the bridge collapse, like the day of the speech talking about, about this. And it, I mean, it, it did sort of drive his point home of yes, yeah. we need like to invest in our infrastructure. And it's a real thing. Like we have crumbling roads and bridges. We do have energy problems and it makes sense for the government to invest in that. And so I agree. I think that that was, actually like a
2: great bill to pass. Mm-hmm. It was in Pittsburgh that the bridge collapsed hours before Biden was scheduled to visit and talk about yes. infrastructure.
1: That's one of those things that as as a, somebody who's giving a speech, you're like, thank, I'm sorry that the bridge collapsed, but thank you for this gift. Thank you for this talking point. This will really <laughs> help drive home my message.
0: Oh, well, That's cynical.
1: <laughs> I That's how my brain thinks. I'm like, okay, I mean, did he mention it in the speech? I'm sure he did. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. Right.
2: (laughs) I'm sure he did
1: (laughs) make political. hay when the sun's up, you know, like it's it's everybody does it. I'm not that's not a knock uniquely to Biden. It's unique to
0: politicians. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So there were a few other things that Biden did um, it through. Well, Biden supported through law and then did an executive orders that I actually didn't know about um, that I felt good about. So Mm -hmm. I want to mention those. One was making Juneteenth a federal holiday, and I feel like I did hear about that, but um, Mm -hmm. I'm really happy to hear about that. You know, Juneteenth is uh, commemorating the end of slavery in the United States with the Emancipation Proclamation, I mean, it's an important holiday for us to have, and it's not, I don't think that's super controversial. I mean, maybe it is, and it's not like this huge change necessarily, but I actually do think that, like, that's important, so I, I was happy to see that. And then he also um, helped pass or supported passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And so this banned imports from uh, one of China's regions, which uses or and has been accused of using forced labor of Uyghurs who are a um, Muslim majority group that is like a minority group in China that has been subject to just like huge human rights violations by the Chinese government. And, you know, I think we could actually be doing more as the United States against this. I think we need to be doing a lot more, but I am happy to see that we have done at least one thing to ban those imports. Um, So I would like to see this continue to be expanded, but I'm glad it's not nothing, I guess I would say.
1: Yeah, I, I was super glad to see that uh, get at least a little bit of traction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy that that I follow. Um, he probably is the only basketball player that I follow. Um, and I, I sincerely apologize if I pronounce his name wrong, but his legal name is Ines Cantor Freedom. He recently became a citizen of the United States and um, changed his last name to Freedom. And this guy, I love following him because he's um, he plays for the Boston Celtics and he's called out this, uh, you know, the Chinese treatment of these Uyghur Muslims. And, um, I think that that's a huge issue. They're basically, you know, into, like you said, forced labor camps. I'm glad that, that that's getting some attention. Uh, I think the Chinese are, you know, as a, as a government are not good actors. They're not honest actors in the world and they deserve to be, um, you know, called out for those types of behaviors for sure. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Um, as, as a miscellaneous, as a miscellaneous for me, I have a few things that I, um, learned some good, some bad, um, that I was, uh, you know, made aware of. He had the highest appointment of federal judges since Reagan. Uh, he appointed federal, 41 federal judges in his first year, which is double what Trump did. You know, you don't have a ton of control because judges will be like, I'm retiring. So now there's a vacancy, um, and oh. going Oh, go ahead.
0: Sorry, I I saw that that was the most a president has appointed in a first year since President Kennedy. And Um, just so so you know, he's got 39 nominations pending right now. So if those all get confirmed, it'll be 81 by like a year and a half in of federal judicial appointments.
1: That's crazy. That's a lot.
0: Yep. He will be getting the Supreme Court appointment as well.
1: Yeah, right. And then the other thing I saw that I, I agree with, uh, you know, I tried to be fair in this. I tried not to just be like, he's a Democrat. So everything he did was bad. So I hope that is coming across. Um, The other thing was that uh, I saw he put a halt to federal executions. I thought that that is a good thing. Um, You know, if you're interested in that, check out our uh, capital punishment, uh, death penalty episode. So that was, I thought a good thing. And uh, based off of our, Stance on that topic, uh, a positive?
0: I didn't know that. Um, that's great to hear. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. I had sure. a few other things, and because maybe some of these things you will not like, so they, okay. they can add on to your list of things. Awesome. <laughs> I looked at some executive orders that uh, Biden did. A lot of the executive orders that he passed in his first 100 days were undoing things that were Trump policies. So, a few of those things that I actually like, really agreed with and was happy to hear were halting funding on the border wall, reversing the travel ban that largely targeted Muslim countries. And um, this was not getting rid of Trump stuff, but just generally embracing more progressive policies on the environment that um, largely were not supported by the Trump administration. And so I was happy to see that. And that includes rejoining like the Paris Climate Accord and then um, also, this is not related to the economy, but halting our departure from the World Health Organization, I thought that was a good move. Um, and and this kind of goes back to COVID, imposing a mask mandate in federal buildings, and that was at the beginning of his presidency when we hadn't had any mask mandates um, from the prior administration. And I actually really liked to see that because that felt to me like... <laughs> following science of where we were at at the time and um, just a strong showing from the government about what the stance was going to be on COVID. And so I appreciated that. I also didn't know this. Biden signed an order, and this is an executive order, that directed 17 federal agencies to focus on areas where Americans can expect more efficient services and less hassle. So this is about reforming the processes of where we have to interact with government. So it has to do with um, getting help, like federal help, after you have a like deal with a natural disaster, renewing passports online, allowing tax filers to actually call customer support and, and receive calls back from the IRS. Like just really practical things about how we interact with government. It feels like a small thing to do, but that actually is one of the biggest things that will make impacts on our lives individually. And so that was kind of cool to see as well.
1: I like that. I appreciate that. I have in the past called out, it's not federal, but I've called out the California DMV because it just is, It I'll say it was in the past such a just disaster area. Like, like it, I mean, it's, it's known, right? Like, oh God, the DMV, I'm so sorry that you have to go do that. But I'll have to say I've done several things recently and I feel like they have brought in some, web developers, they brought in some UI consultants, they brought in some workflow experts, and they've really, like the website is actually decent to to navigate now. So I am encouraged that Biden is doing that at the federal level, because um, I think that's like maybe the uh, the government's actual biggest opportunity for improvement in making people like our government again, is making them easier to interact with. And not just oh, great, I got a bill from the IRS in paper, this cold impartial letter, and now I owe thousands of dollars. It's like, if you can make the interactions user-friendly and a positive experience, like you're going to save some of your reputation. So I think that's, that's a nice sentiment.
0: And I have to do a quick aside there. The last time I went to the DMV, which was two weeks ago, I was in and out in half an hour. It That's was incredible. The best DMV experience I have ever had. This was in San Francisco and, um, it is changing my view about the DMV. So that was really great.
1: Good for them. That's great. Yeah. Good snaps, big ups to the department of motor vehicles of California. All um, right.
0: Hit me with the things that you are not stoked about.
1: The things I'm not stoked about, some of which, um, are things that you were stoked about. So one of them being, uh, the immigration issue. So um, you were like that he stopped funding for the wall. I think that our border is a problem. Um, they, the, the White House released this, and I, I think it's funny because it just goes to show you how data can be used so subjectively to influence people that have different biases. The White House said that we have had the highest rate of e, um, illegal immigrant capture in the United States history. And so they bragged that they said that they encountered 1.7 million uh, interactions with people trying to enter the country. And they said, this is a good thing. So to me, that's that's quite a large number just in one fiscal year. As a comparison, because I, I, I'd wanted to look back and see what was happening you know, during the Trump era. Um, in 2017, the total number was 310,000. So like a fifth, roughly a fifth, as many um uh, entries or attempted entries so the reason why i I think it's an issue beyond just the the immigration problem is um when you couple it with the exploding rate of uh fentanyl that's that's coming into the country um this last year the dea took the step of issuing a public warning um as the dea had seized more than 9.5 million fentanyl-laced pills designed to look like prescription drugs. Um, And fentanyl overdoses have now eclipsed accidents and suicide as the leading cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 45. So that's something that I don't think the administration is doing a great job on. I would like to see um, a a more stringent enforcement of the border, especially because I think it's known and, and been reported on that Different nations, you know, China and Afghanistan and others are manufacturing pills and then, you know, the cartels are getting involved and then those pills are entering U.S. markets. So that's, I think, a huge problem. And I would like to see that changed in the future and crime in general. Biden obviously doesn't have like a a control over police departments and things like that. But um, we did see a huge spike in like officer uh, police officer shootings. 346 officers were killed last year uh, or were shot and 73 were killed. And that's, that's, I think a new high. So I, I would like to see a little bit more. Oh, and murders rose in at least 22 major cities, which is uh, also a reversal of a trend we've been seeing for a long time. So in those areas kind of just like, like maybe, you know, crime type areas, I would like to see the administration do more or support more policies because those are things I think that have, a chance to affect everybody uh, in a negative way. So those are my, those are my miscellaneous negatives.
0: Mm. The crime thing is interesting. And I've seen this a lot recently, you know, crime rates are up across the board. It's homicides, but it's also break-ins. And then we mm. also have things, this isn't crime, but we have increase in all of these things that are just really negative for society. And I think are indicative of showing that our society is actually not functioning very well when we have increases in these areas, I think it has just a lot to do with COVID and being restricted, being isolated, and that if we can figure out how to live with COVID in a more endemic way, it will assist on crime and um, you know these other areas. Because those all shot up during during the beginning of covid and they they've increased over time but i think there is a causal relationship there
1: yeah i'm i i think it contributes like, you know this is kind of one of those things like the economy it's it's really hard to say but i think that at least from my side of the aisle it seems like that the the defund the police movement i think was maybe some signaling that we're not going to be as tough on crime in a lot of major uh cities which are you know, primarily Democrat leaning or or you know running, meaning like the Democrats are in charge of of the cities in terms of mayoral or or police chiefs or whatnot, um, cut police budgets, which I think whenever you do that, you do tend to see, you know, some kind of corresponding increase in crime. So I think what you're saying is true. COVID does exacerbate these things because as a mental health phenomenon, COVID has not been easy on the country or or the world, I should say. So people are probably looking, you know, for Outlets for that type of, uh, you know, for those problems. However, the, I don't think that the budget cuts and and the defund the police movements really helped in terms of like, you know, keeping you know crime down.
2: There are a lot of articles about this, and we could definitely hit this on another episode about the claim that defunding the police increases violence and homicides. So I definitely think we should dig into that more because I'm not sure that that's that we can accept that as true at face value.
0: Yeah. And I have been seeing things saying not I wouldn't say the opposite, but that there actually have not been very many police departments whose funding has been cut. And that that connection between, say, cutting police department funds is not causing the rise in crime because there actually just haven't been that many budgets that have been decreased. But, you know, increase in police shootings, there could be a sentiment, I think, that could that of, you know, the general rhetoric around police in the last year that could have contributed to that. But I think Cassie's right. I think that's a bigger conversation,
2: probably, but we need to research it a little bit more. Sure, I'd yeah. be happy to have it. It, it. It's fascinating and it's ongoing.
1: Yeah, um, I, I'm trying to find who it was, but I, I don't say that just because I Think that I I say that because there was some Democrat kind of advisor said the messaging and and maybe safe harbor I won't say because I don't think Democrats really encouraged, um, defund the police but I think that it was not it was not opposed as strongly and so I think it found some some footing there I think that um, I'll have to find it for and for when we do talk about this but there was some Democrat advisor that came out and said you you know voters are really concerned about this and this should be something that, that Democrats shy away from as a strategy going into 2022. Um, because of because crime is up and, and people associate those two things together, this should be something that is not, that we don't endorse or don't give harbor to.
0: Sure, and that makes sense. But yeah. that's not the same thing as saying all these police budgets were cut and now we have a rise in crime, right? I think we need to talk about foreign policy real quick because this is like one of the biggest issues with Biden. And, you know, I mentioned before that COVID was not my biggest problem with Biden. Foreign policy and just his general ability to communicate internationally and then also just to the American people, those are my biggest issues with Biden. So I just want to cover that. We can do it quickly. But the biggest thing is Afghanistan. You know, I actually think the first six months of Biden's presidency were going pretty well with the vaccine rollout, with Covid stimulus. Um, it was before Delta, and then Delta hit in August, and the Afghanistan pullout was in August. And I feel like things have just really shifted since then, and it's kind of been downhill for him since August. But as we talked about, the that departure was just really, really terrible, and there were many ways that that could have been better. And so I think that that has just really not been good.
1: Agreed. Yeah, I don't need to say much more. I didn't say Afghanistan was my worst because I feel like um, the COVID thing affects everybody so much more on a day to day basis, but I totally agree. I mean, you can listen to that episode if you're interested. And I was very harsh on the administration at the time, and my feelings have not changed in that respect. So I agree with you. And then, kind of to Cassie's question going forward, we didn't talk about this, but the Russia Ukraine situation is obviously getting pretty bad. And that's something that I don't have a lot of confidence in Biden to navigate well, but I mean, could pose, you know, kind of an existential threat to the United States in a way that we haven't seen since the Cold War, which would be obviously a huge issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am also worried about Russia, Ukraine. That's a very difficult situation. And I think it it is also difficult to figure out exactly what will be helpful from the United States. Yeah. And I, I agree that whatever the situation is going to be, it's going to be tricky. It's already tricky to navigate. And so it it needs like a very careful touch. Maybe the Biden administration can do it. Maybe they learn from Afghanistan. I don't know. Yeah, I hope because I have to. But I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm I'm totally confident, but I also don't think that I am. You know, I, I am just assuming that they're going to take it.
1: I, I'm hoping that I I did a little bit of research into kind of what the situation is, and I'm I'm kind of hoping that Europe takes the lead on this one, and we can provide more of a supporting role, uh, in terms of rhetoric and in terms of uh, financial support or sanctions or something like that. But I think given the weak entrance that the Biden administration has had on the foreign policy stage, it would be better for them to take a backseat, say the right things, don't be too off the cuff, like let let NATO and let Europe, you know, who it affects, I think, most directly, let them navigate this one. And we'll kind of give some encouragement and, and clap along uh, as as maybe a, a proud parent would do.
0: And from what I can tell, that is the strategy that has been executed at this point. Mm-hmm. That That's what it looks like to me. And I think that um, Ukraine has also asked the U.S. to basically like help yeah. on the down low and don't aggravate Russia because whatever we do, we're aggravating Russia and that's the issue. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot there I think for us to get into um, at another time, but yes, I think that Biden's foreign policy by and large has been pretty weak. And one of the things to go back to Cassie, what you were saying on delivery and on campaign promises, one of the things he campaigned on was I'm going to fix the United States ties with all these countries who don't trust us. And um, I don't think that he has really done that very well. And one of the areas that you really do have a lot of power over as president is foreign policy. You know, you are limited on how much you can get passed, especially with the margin that Biden has in the Senate, which is, you know, barely a majority, right? Um, But foreign policy is the executive's prerogative for the most part. So it's a place you can really assert yourself. And I don't feel like the Biden administration has done that uh, very effectively.
1: Yeah. well said.
0: So agree moving forward. We're going to hope that that improves.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah.
0: I do have other things that I want to see uh, very quickly. Do want to see what we're going to do about living with COVID and that becoming not a, you know, mask for a couple months and then no mask for a couple months. And and fl- this flip-flopping thing, I think it's been like that for a couple years now. That was before Biden and during Biden, and everyone is tired. Everyone is sick of it. Like, Let's get a plan together for how we're going to deal with new waves because we know new waves are going to come. So let's figure out how we're going to do this going forward. I would love to see that. I want to see voting rights legislation And we didn't really talk about this. This is one of the things that has been really difficult this last year. Um, Biden has supported voting rights legislation and it has not passed. The um, John Lewis voting rights bill died in uh, the House, the Senate. I don't remember where. Um, But this has been frustrating for me to watch because I do actually think we need some election reform. Um, We talked about that a little bit on like the January 6th podcast. And one of the ways that we could do that is by, and people have talked about this, by amending the Electoral Count Act to make things a little more uniform across states. So, say, setting uniform days of when mail-in ballots are due so that you don't have different votes coming in at different times in states. That's just like an administrative practical measure that could actually, like, increase uh, confidence in our voting system. I think addressing some of the other structural issues with voting in states there's a there is a ability for us to be able to do something like that that's bipartisan. There have been different Republicans who said they're open to amending the electoral college act or the electoral count act to actually doing some some legislation to increase voter confidence in our voting system to close some loopholes and It it feels like the voting legislation that Biden has been pushing is so expansive that it's alienating all the Republicans and some Democrats when there actually could be an opportunity for a bipartisan bill here. And it's probably not as much as like progressive Democrats would want, but it's better than nothing. And it's I don't think it's not just like better than nothing. I think it'd be great to actually do something that would increase bipartisanship and show that both parties are invested in protecting our voting system. And there's actually ways to do that in a bipartisan way. And so that I would really like to see.
1: Yeah. And and um, I, the, there was some information on that quickly, because I know we're probably getting close to time, is um, that there was originally some Senate Republicans who offered to vote with Democrats to adjust the Electoral Count Act. But Originally, I think Democrats turned them down on that. I'm not sure I'd have to look into more, but as a news story from January, yeah, January 20th this year, um, it says that uh, Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Mitt Romney of Utah both confirmed that a bipartisan group of lawmakers will have a series of video meetings starting in the next several days to see if they can agree on a deal soon regarding reforming the electoral count act so i think that that's something that that is on the horizon for 2022
0: and that would be great i would really love to see that
1: i would love to see him do as little as possible until he's out of office that's what i would love to see
0: (laughs) i i would not love to see that so i'm going to disagree with you on that one too that's okay i will say (laughs) i don't know I don't know how much I like want to dunk on Biden, but it's also like, I want to be honest, I'm not stoked about this president. I I'm, I'm glad that it's not somebody else, but at the same time, it's just like, I want to be critical of the person, you know, in my party and how they're doing. And, um, I think that there could be, I think there could be things that are better here. And um, I do actually really hope that Biden doesn't run again. I think he's too old. And I think we need people who are younger. I think the same thing about Trump and some of the other just much older politicians, like, let's get some new blood in there. You know, I think we need to move on from these 80 year olds being president.
1: I totally agree. Yeah, I, I think for we need, yeah, ideally, we'd like somebody new that doesn't have a bunch of baggage with them. Somebody who hasn't been in politics for 80 years. I know Trump was that. But um, somebody with a little more elevated than Trump. So I agree. Yeah.
0: Honestly, not a fan, but like, where did Paul Ryan go? I thought that he was going to run for president at some point and he's fully just like disappeared.
1: Yeah. Honestly, I think he was over it. I think he was, um, Minority well, leader was, during Obama Yeah, He was minority leader
0: for like a hot second and then was like, no, nah, I'm not doing this. <laughs>
1: yeah, which, I mean, I don't blame the guy like to have to go into politics. I'm like, you, something is maybe a little wrong. So I don't blame him for wanting to leave. But yeah, he seemed, he seemed all right.
0: He was just very popular and he's yeah. like an older millennial and um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: All right, I have one more note of business before we wrap. And that is, I think I am owed... A Rand Paul quote.
0: gazi that for, was you. You are the one who episode. committed to
2: this. Oh I believe gosh.
1: I was owed a quotation.
2: Best Rand Paul <laughs> quotes. <laughs> Honey, nothing came up. It said he's never ever said anything good. Ever. Oh, he's
1: never spoken. <laughs>
2: oh my no. gosh. You guys, I'm sorry. Yes, you're going to have to look into this for next time because I'm looking at it right now. Cause I never want to do this again. No, I uh, think, but
0: you need to be able to filter it in in an appropriate way. It's got, know, you got a turn.
1: No, no, here's I don't want just something. First. I don't want just something he said. I want a thoughtful, relevant quote based off the topic at hand.
2: It's not working at all. I will find, I will come up with something. It was, <laughs> it was like, if, if you're at a cocktail party with someone who has Ebola, you will get it. That was the quote that came up. <laughs> oh, it was the number one quote on the page. I didn't ask for this.
1: Well, I don't <sighs> think that's very relevant to our Mm-mm. to our discussion today. That's okay.
2: Cassie, your challenge has been renewed. All right. Yep. I will yep. I'll work on it.
1: All right. Well, hey, thanks for this, uh, this week's episode. I really appreciated the conversation. And Aaron, I appreciated the honesty. I super respect that you were able to, like, you know, I feel like be really fair and hold your guy accountable for what you like and, and you know, uh, uh, praise him for what you do. Did I, say this? Did I say that wrong? Hold him accountable for what you don't like and praise him for what you do. There we go.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's how we should all approach all of our politicians just it's it's worth it to think critically about what people are doing
1: thank you guys right. appreciate appreciate you guiding us through being our producer in chief over here so appreciate you and we will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks thanks for listening like subscribe rate do all the stuff we always ask you to do we we, we actually got some new reviews i saw so thank you for whoever recently reviewed us and mm-hmm. um you know the biggest way you can help is just tell somebody else about us. We we want you all to be reframers, practice these conversations, talk about difficult stuff with friends. And uh, yeah, we'll give you something new in a couple weeks.
0: All right. We'll see you then.
2: Thanks, everybody.
1: Thank you for listening to the reframers pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode.
0: You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod, And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com.